we're going out. We're going out of the bottom today. Oh my goodness! Yeah, we'll find a way out of hell today. Mm-hmm. All right. And it's interesting how how Dante would depict that. All right. Here's our prayer that we've been starting each of our lessons with: the Lenten prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, who hateth nothing that Thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all them that are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of Thee, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Dante's Inferno. And uh, we will find the crescendo today uh, where all this is going. And to help us understand the kind of where we've been and where we're going to go and how we're going to get out, I want to go back to one of the famous paintings of the Inferno that I started with, and that's Botticelli's The Map of Hell. You know, it's like a funnel. The circles are wider at the top, and it gets narrower and narrower. And the punishments get more and more restricting, conscripting, so to speak, upon the sinners as they go down into hell. To find at the very end where everything is funneled, once you get in, you're being drawn down to this point. It's almost like a magnet here at the bottom of hell, pulling people down here into this very intense, restricted area where the bad guy is going to be. Uh, Victor Hans, I mean Lucifer, (laughs) is there at the bottom of this pulling everyone down into his own corruption. Now, I wish I'd had a little bigger uh, picture of this painting because if you see at the very bottom of it, there's a little sort of mound right there, and that's interesting. That's the trap door out of hell. There is a way to get out of this. And Dante and Virgil are going to show us how to do that. But, bear with me as I get up to where we are today. This will probably make you dizzy, so look away. Keep in mind that one of the great themes come in that Dante is teaching throughout all of the Inferno is you reap what you sow. That the particular sins that he mentions here, uh, they're not just foibles. They're not just a matter of human weakness. All of those, all of us know that. That sometimes we succumb because of circumstances or because of inner issues, conflicts within our own minds and hearts and so on, and we will make mistakes. But the sins that Dante records here are those that are deliberate, vol- deliberate volitional, intentional. And they create consequences that take on a life of their own. And these consequences eventually uh, fold back upon the sinner. We reap what we sow. There's a justice to hell. In Dante's viewpoint, it's not arbitrary. It's not capricious. God's just not you know, flexing God's kind of wrathful muscles in order to get even with humanity. Hell is the environment that sin has created where people suffer the consequences of the harm that they have done. It's the embodiment of the illness, so to speak, the disease that has been brought into creation. I think to understand and appreciate and to really learn a lot from what Dante is saying, go back to what I've mentioned on a number of occasions, the kind of philosophical, theological backdrop to the inferno and and the paradise, I mean, purgatory and paradise, is that the world is created in a hierarchical system relative to uh, the, the reality and the amount of love proportional to that reality. The world is a meaningful place. God, heaven, earth, humanity, animals, all that is created good 
And we rightly relate to that hierarchical order of good by ordering our loves relative to the objects of our loves. We should love God more than heaven. We should love heaven more than earth. We should love humanity more than animals. We should love animals. We should love the whole world. And we have to have the right kind of love to position ourselves in the world that God has created. What happens with sin is that we love the wrong things too much. We think we might be loving the right things, but we love the wrong things too much. Each one of these circles that we've seen, these people had strong desires, strong intentions. They didn't just trip into their sin. It wasn't just an accident that they ended up in the inferno for Dante. That is, they willed, they intentioned, they desired to do something. But what made it erroneous, what made it you know, disease, what made it malignant for them, is that they loved the wrong thing. So, this comes from St. Augustine. In fact, I, you know, probably, even though there's a lot of St. Thomas's sort of philosophy theology behind this, Aristotle's back there, but the, I think the real theological motif that runs through all this is an Augustinian vision that when you love, you should love, but you have to love correctly. This is so much part of what Dante's teaching. We all will love. Augustine said, uh, we take on the characteristics of the things that we love. And if we love the good things, we take on the characteristics of that. If we love the bad things, we take on the characteristic of the bad thing. And that's what hell is, the result of misapplied love. Well, we're now in Canto 30. And this is a particularly interesting group of people. Well, they're all pretty interesting. But these are the falsifiers of different stripes. We saw falsifiers in, in Canto 29, but now we see three different kinds of other people who falsify, mislead, who, who deceive. They're the evil impersonators, the counterfeiters, and the false witnesses. Now, we're getting closer to Lucifer, to Satan. And these people are closer than so many of these others that we've seen before. Now, think with me for a second. In light of his kind of metaphysical hierarchy, God... Earth, I mean, God, heaven, earth, humanity, animals. Why is falsifying so pernicious? Why is it so destructive? It's even more destructive than many of these other sins that we've seen. It is an attack upon God's good order. You lie about it. The reason why lying is wrong is because it rejects the good order that God has created. These falsifiers, evil personators, counterfeiters, and fault witnesses, do not accept the goodness of God. They reject it by covering it over with lies, with deceptions, with falsifying. Well, first of all, let's look at the, um, the impersonators. These are the ones who falsify the real self, impersonate others in order to get their own designs. Here he says, But never in Thebes nor Troy were furies seen to strike at man or beast in such mad rage as to us all, pale, naked, and unclean, who suddenly came running toward us then, snapping their teeth as they ran like hungry swine. Here's another one of the Gustav Dürer's uh, etchings of uh, what goes on in Inferno. And these are men being chased here by these furies. That is, these people... They, they stole from other, that is, the appearance of other people. That is, somebody, let's say, would dress like, like Willis here in order to connive or, connive, or, or, I mean, or deceive other people. Well, the punishment that an impersonator gets is that they are constantly having their image taken away by these furies. You see the pitchforks. They're always digging, clawing away somebody's appearance, and they're on constant run for eternity. 
they always are having their own appearance being taken away here by these ravaging uh, uh, furies. The counterfeiters. And there I saw another husk of sin who had his legs been trimmed away at the groin would have looked for all the world like a mandolin. The dropsy-heavy humors which is bunch and spread the limbs had disappointed him till his face seemed much too small for his swollen, a swollen paunch. The counterfeiter here has dropsy, like the face. Part of the face starts to drop. As it says, his face seemed too small for the swollen paunch. Everything is sort of distorted, skewed. He's not really what he appears to be. He's, his face is all kind of messed up because of this, this disease that has come upon him. And it's the counterfeiters who have brought this particular disease upon him. Let me mention one that he... Um, he mentions here, the guy's name is Master Adam. Interesting name. He was a counterfeiter. And uh, they burned him at the stake in the year 1281 for being a counterfeiter. He lived in Florence. And the currency of Florence was called the Florin, Florence Florin. And he was able to get the 20, uh, uh, the 20, yeah, what? He, he got the 23rd carat gold piece to uh, be numbered as a 21 karat gold piece. And so whenever it was passed around, he, with his counterfeit, was able to get two extra units of carat gold because of that counterfeit. And evidently that caused great harm there in Florence. And when he was um, uh, captured, they, uh, they, uh, they burned him at the stake for doing so. Let me ask you a question. What's wrong with current uh, counterfeit money? What's wrong with that? Why is this guy so close to the very center of hell for counterfeiting money? What's so wrong with counterfeit money? It devalues the currency. What's wrong with devaluing? I'm, I'm leading you on. I know you all know the answer to this. But what's so wrong with devaluing the currency? You undermine society, don't you? What is currency? It's interesting... The word current, back and forth. What's going on back and forth? People's lives, people's intentions, the supply and demand idea. I have something, you want it. We have a way of making that transaction you know, plausible, public, hopefully legal. Currency is a way of stabilizing people's relationships with one another. And if, I mean, you, you, you pull out a dollar bill. It's not just paper with interesting designs and ink on it. What it represents is our social life together. Currency, in a sense, becomes the boundary by which we do interactions and, and exchanges and production, I mean, production and selling with one another. As the currency is stable, it has a way of stabilizing society, but when it becomes counterfeit, the whole society becomes eroded because of that. That's why you know, we have major, major federal laws against counterfeit money, counterfeiters. Well, in a theological sense, what these counterfeiters are doing are undermining the good order of God's creation. It's interesting that Dante here sees currency, the fact that we have a, a well-reasoned, re well established currency exchange with one another as a reflection of the goodness of creation. That is, look how much better our lives are. At least they can be. Of course, we also pervert these things. It's our tendency to do so. But that we have a currency that we can exchange, use for transactions and so on. What if we had to barter everything? Look how... Look how laborious that would be and, and, and how so much of the, the bounty and the blessings of God's creations would be limited by what we could barter with. You got a car? Okay, I got, I got ten pigs. Is that okay? So I carry ten pigs over there. 
If you got a car and I got the money, we make the transaction happen right then. In other words, currency enables us to kind of harvest, marshal the goodness of creation, the bounty and the blessings of God's world. When it becomes counterfeit, falsified, it erodes the whole social fabric. And even here in the 13th century, Dante knew that. And therefore, these people have a special place in hell because it's not just tinkering around with the value of money. It is eroding God's good creation. That's why this is so serious. Okay, the next group here, uh, the false witnesses. Um, who are those wretched two sprawled along your right-hand borders who seem to smoke as washed hand smokes in winter? One is the liar who charged young Joseph wrongly. Does that ring a bell with anyone? The other is Sinon, the false Greek from Troy. A burning fever makes them reek so strongly. Here are two people who falsified words. Impersonators falsified appearances. Counterfeiters, currency. These false witnesses, words. This is referring to Potiphar's wife who tried to seduce Joseph. Sinon was the one who uh, deceived the Trojans to allow the wooden horse to come in. And then, it, as you know, were all the Greek soldiers. He lied to the Trojans, saying it was a gift rather than a, a ploy. And so it led to the downfall. But the misuse of words, here a whole city fell. Okay, here are a couple of interesting pictures. Again, this is Augustus door. Uh, Virgil and Dante are up there looking down in this circle and seeing these people in anguish because of their falsified uh, punishment. Here's Potiphar's wife. Uh, she is all tormented. Uh, hold on one second. She is tormented because of her falsification. Uh, she is exposed for what she has done. She cannot hide behind her words. Uh, there is no hiding here. She's trying to hide her face, but she is totally naked. Here's a very famous painting. I like this one. We've got all those great Renaissance lustre. It was actually post-Renaissance, but nonetheless, it's a, in the theme of Renaissance painting of Potter's wife trying to seduce Joseph. Now, as Dante and Virgil are moving through this circle, uh, he sees... Sinon, the one who had deceived the Trojans about the wooden horse, taking on a fight with the counterfeiter that we had looked at earlier, Master Adam. They are close to one another. They start, they're sort of locked in. They start butting their heads against one another. And Dante is watching this, and he almost is gleefully laughing at what's happening, seeing these two sinners suffer the eternal punishment that they brought on themselves. Virgil gets irate. And castigates Dante for doing that. You should not delight in the punishment that sinners bring upon themselves. This is nothing to be gleeful about. And Dante feels shame about it and asks for you know, forgiveness and then they will move on. But it's an interesting insight that Dante writes here about himself. That is, even though these people reap what they sow, justice will win out. God's law will always be the last word. God will restore the right order of creation. However, though, we should not take glee in people's punishment. This should not be a matter of joy or happiness, entertainment, that we see people reap what they sow and suffer 
for the consequences of this. Now, Canto 31, to me, is one of the most... Well, they're all interesting, but this one in, in particular is intriguing. What little I know about all this, there's been some interesting things written about what's called here the giants. All right, they have passed through and they have come to this area and they're looking off and they see these towers, Dante and Virgil. And Dante thinks they're moving into a city. All right, there's the skyscrapers. Well, let's go to this city here. And so they set off to the city, and the closer they get, they realize they are not towers. Rather, they are giants guarding guarding the inner circle of hell. Okay. As I started through that obscurity, I saw what seemed a cluster of great towers. Whereat I cried, Master, what is this city? They are not towers, but giants. They stand in the well from the navel down, and stationed around its bank, they mount guard on the final pit of hell. And here's a very vivid picture of that. You see how small Virgil and Dante are, and they're looking at these giants there. The one on the left is Nimrod. All right, Nimrod is, or was the first king of Babylon. It was an ancient myth, medieval probably in origin, that Nimrod was actually the builder of the Tower of Babel. This is what is in Dante's mind. The other giants there are from Greek mythology. They're titans. And uh, they are horrible. They are ruthless. They are incredibly destructive. And they are uncontrollable. Here, Nimrod is associated with them. Now, let's think about this. These are beasts. They're stuck half into the ground there. Uh, they are without kind of... In, they're, they are without intelligence. They are, are mainly just sort of power of nature here embodied. And they are surrounding the city. Dante thought they were actually towers of the city, but actually they're just the bestial forces of nature. Instead of being the great accomplishments of civilization, look at what we've done. We have built a great city. Actually, these towers are giant forces of bestial destruction. It's also interesting, relying upon that myth, that Dante uses Nimrod here. What do you think? you see any sort of interesting correlation between giants, Tower of Babel, cities? All right, you, you remember why the Tower of Babel was built there in Genesis? The people of the world came together and said, let us make a name for ourselves. And so they built this tower up to heaven to show just how great they were. In a sense, the tower becomes a symbol of their self-glorification. Not the glorification of God, but of their own power, their own design, their own mind. And God strikes that tower down, strikes the single voice out, everybody gets dispersed, Everybody is speaking different languages so that they cannot come together and build such an edifice again of self-glorification, of idolizing their own powers and accomplishment. The Tower of Babel, which parenthetically, I've always been sort of amused, not no, confused or bemused, why the Tower of Babel is not used more in the scripture. I find this an incredibly insightful symbol. Uh, it, it fits so much of other you know, like prophets and even Christ and the apostles depiction of society that here it is when we build things separate from God 
it ends up in destruction upon us. Whenever all of us are brought together, what we'll end up doing is building towers of Babel rather than glorifying God. In a sense, it's better to live in a world that's confused, multiple languages, than it is to live in a world where we all can come together and do one great thing. And that great thing would always be an expression of our own self-idolatry. I think that's a pretty interesting insight. But the Tower of Babel here is a symbol of people building a city to their own glory, to their own significance. And these other titans and giants that are with him here are also symbolic of that. Now, a little later, we're going to talk about Cain, the mark of Cain. But in the biblical account, do any of you remember what Cain did after he was exiled? What the scriptures say about it? This is one of those lines that we ought to pay more attention about. Cain went out and built a city. A city was built by Cain. Cain bears the mark of killing his brother Abel. He is exiled away from his family to wander. And the first thing he does in his wandering with his curse upon him, God keeps him alive, gives the mark so that when people will see him, they will recognize that this person is protected by God, but he's cursed. And what does he do? He builds a city. Here, Dante, near the center of hell, has a city as a sign of Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, Cain's mark of people's effort to, to be their own God. Now, I'm not against cities. None of us are. We live in a city. We have tall buildings surrounding us. Are they the Tower of Babel? You know, I, I think it's, it's an ambiguous point. Uh, there are a lot of good that goes on in some of these buildings, for sure. Uh, I, I'm not going to say they're like Nimrod or the Tower of Babel. But we do have to admit this, though. There's always the tendency in any human industry to use that industry for self-glorification and not the glorification of God. There is always the temptation to use power for corruption, self-advancement rather than the advancement of justice. It, it, is, it is a pervasive, it is a ubiquitous problem, and none of us are away from it. And the more centralized power becomes the more corrupt it becomes. The old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Here when we centralize power in terms of towers of Babel, in terms of these giants look like towers in the city, what follows that? You know, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that the history of humanity has always been struggling with how we handle power. How do we handle the ability that we have to influence other people? And the more concentrated and the more pervasive and the more controlling that can be, the more corrupt it can become. There's no doubt about it. And if there's one of the great lessons that we ought to learn, not only from uh, history but from reading the Scriptures, is that very thing. The more concentrated power becomes, the greater its, its, its possibility for perversion. And so we see these giants here as a symbol of this bestial nature here guarding the city. Like I said, I, I think there's, there's tremendous insight in that idea. And here he is. I mean, he dies in 1321. He, he didn't have, you know, the great cities that we have. They lived in great cities, but not like what we have. He even then knew at that point how subtle power can become. Let me think here for a second. Something was in my mind. Uh, hold on. I can't remember. 
Oh, this is what I was thinking. This is just an illustration of this. Um, some of you may be familiar with what's called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. These were people in the 3rd and 4th, 5th century that um, retreated into the deserts of Egypt and Syria and Judea and formed monasteries. I've been actually to a couple of those. And in those monasteries, they developed certain monastic practices and a lot of that was written down. And now it's in all in a book called the Apathakamata, that is the Sayings of the Fathers. And they're very insightful, very, very um, poignant, very practical, too. There's not a lot of theoretical theology or philosophy behind all that. A lot of advice, a lot of suggestions, and so on. Uh, but these people, though, mainly came out of cities. Even in the 3rd and 4th century, they came to a conviction that there were too many compromises being asked upon them to live in the cities that they did. And so they retreated out into the deserts. And they started these monastic communities. Anthony, being the, who's called the, the founder of Christian monasticism, was such a person. He became totally disillusioned with the city life that he had been in. He had been in Constantinople for a while and felt like it was just too corrupt. It asked too many compromises. And in a sense, as a Christian, I think one of the most difficult things for us to settle, and it's vexatious, it, I think it really causes anguish for us, is how many compromises can we live with? We're always having to compromise certain things. How many can we live with? Well, what makes that, I think, a poignant issue for us is because, in a sense, those things that are asking us to compromise our Christian convictions, like love of neighbor, love of enemy, look upon others as better than themselves, care for those who cannot care for themselves, Respect and honor and support the orphans, the widows, and the strangers. These sort of things here. Those forces that are asking us to compromise on those very central Christian claims are like the giants here. They're epitomes of self-glorification representing our culture. All right, moving right along. Circle nine. Uh, these are treacherous people. Uh, we are here at the bottom. And it's called... Cocytus. And as Virgil and Dante move into it, they notice that it is a frozen lake. There are various circles within this lake filled with certain people relative to their sins. But it's one big frozen lake. And as they move up to it, they start to see people screaming and hollering. And this is, those, this is the place saved by people of treachery. The first here is treachery to kin and then to country. The tears their eyes had managed to contain up to that point gushed out, and the cold froze them between the lids, sealing them shut again, tighter than any clap, clamp grips wood to wood. And mad with pain, they fell to butting heads like billy goats in a sudden savage mood. What a vivid imagination that these treacherous people are frozen together, shoulder to shoulder. They're crying weeping because of their fate, their tears would freeze. The more they would cry, the more their, their eyelids would freeze and they could never open it up. So in trying to cry out or, or soothe themselves by emotionally purging themselves, the more they suffered the fate of treachery. To the point, as he sort of vividly depicts here, like billy goats are just slamming their heads into each other. All right, what is treachery? Um, and why is it so egregious for Dante? 
You know, we don't use the word treachery a whole lot. Do you ever hear that word much? I don't hear it much. Um, it has a real kind of connotation to it, treachery. It's worse than just, you know, that was a bad thing to do. If we say that was treacherous, the connotation, I think, is that it tears apart something. Something that was designed to be together, a treacherous act, rips it apart. Treacherous. It's a way of rendering something that should have stayed intact. Here, these people have torn apart families, torn apart countries, and in a minute we're going to see tried to tear apart heaven itself. Treachery here is so bad because it is, and in some ways, Lucifer's fundamental sin is treachery. It is so bad because it tries to rip apart the good order of God's creation. Those who are treacherous to kin, that is, they'll lie, they'll connive, they'll abuse, they'll, they'll manipulate, they'll harm kinfolk, is an incredibly serious offense against God's creation. Anything here that leads to treachery in the family, here is reserved at the, one of the lowest points in all of hell. And the same thing for country. Again, what makes this serious for Dante is, again, the philosophical theological backdrop is that the world is ordered in a certain way and that order is good. When we love things properly, we fit within the goodness of God creation. Part of that is the sacredness of the family. So if you're treacherous against a family member, you're not just hurting your nephew or your child or your mate. You're assaulting God's good creation. Right. As a famine, famished man chew crust, so the one sinner sank his teeth into the other's nap at the base of the skull, gnawing his loathsome dinner. I'll come back to that. Let me show you a picture here. Um, well, no, I'll tell you what, I'm going to skip around. Here you go. This is a depiction of two guys here, Ugolina and Ruggeri, I suppose. I'm not really for sure. Here's another one. This is this one's a Gustav Dürer. Virgil and Dante are looking down. These guys are frozen here, and one of them is constantly chewing on the back of this other's neck. This is the consequence of their sin. Hold on one second. I'm a little, hold on, I got that one wrong, I think. Yeah, that, I'm actually ahead of myself. The, those slides belong to 33, so I'm going to back up. Okay, this land that uh, these treacherous people are in are, is going to be called the land <coughs> of Cain and then the dead lord of Antenorah. Why is that? All right. We all know about Cain. Here we see this depiction, this door etching of Cain looking upon Abel. And as Abel is offering the sacrifice, Cain, out of jealousy, goes over and uh, kills Abel and wants the sacrifice for himself. There's a lot of, you know, sort of, um, uh, I guess, speculation about why would Cain be so offended by that that particular sin, I mean, that particular sacrifice by his brother. Not really for sure. There's always the sibling rivalry. Think about in the scriptures how, how sibling rivalry plays a very important role in, in the story 
of God's people, from Joseph and his brothers, and Jacob and Esau. It's interesting how much the warring brothers, and there are a few sort of conflicting sisters in the story, nonetheless sort of move the story further. But at the very beginning then, of here in the biblical account of our self-understanding, we see brothers vying with one another. Now, they're not vying over a trivial thing. This is not like one fighting over a coat or or a meal. Here they're fighting over a sacrifice to God, an ultimate concern. There's jealousy here in the family over the ultimate orientation of that family. In the sacrifice, we are right with God. Cain did not want his brother to be right with God. He wanted to be right with God. He was willing to treacherously tear apart his family, even kill his brother, in order for him, not his brother, to be right with God. And for Dante, down in hell, there is a special place for people who act like Cain. These people, out of jealousy, what, envy? What is it? What motivates division, dissension, conflict, hatred, divisions, treacherous acts within the family? You can just see, you know, you know of, you've heard of, uh, horrible things done in families because of jealousies and envy. Um, and some of it, I don't think we really know why we have conflicts in our families. I don't know. Memories are built up, things are unresolved, and we tear out at our families. This is the sin of Cain. And anyone who, bear, who, who does that, who rips apart a family here, uh, is bearing the mark of Cain. All right. Let me, I'm going to come back to these depictions here because I got ahead of myself with this. We're in uh, Canto 33. This is the treacherous to the country, to guest and host. So it's treacherous to kin, then to country, and then really to the, to the uh, right of, resp- of hospitality. That is when we're treacherous to guest and host. But if uh, my words may be a seed that bears the fruit of infamy for him, I gnaw, I shall weep. But tell my story through my tears. I was Count Ugolino, and I must explain this Reverend Grace is the Archbishop Rugiri. Now I tell I, I will tell you why I gnaw his brain. Why would he want to gnaw his brain? First of all, a little bit about Ugolino. Alright, that's a famous Sculpture there by Caparo, 1861, of him. Count Ugolino and the Archbishop here had plotted together to steal from the uh, city's coffers. All right, and in doing it, though, the Archbishop betrayed the Count, and the Count then was arrested with his four sons. The city sealed the prison door, didn't feed them, and they all starved to death. All right? So here the count sees his four sons die in front of him, and he swears revenge against the archbishop. All right? Here we are in hell. They are frozen together, and this is what they're doing. The one that was starved to death because of the treachery is now feeding on the one who was treacherous. The treacherous one tore apart their bond with one another. Now, the one who suffered the treacherous act is tearing apart the one who caused the treachery. 
And that's the doer painting of that. You see him on the back of his neck just ripping at him. This is the consequence of tre- uh, treachery. We reap what we sow. If we tear apart, we will be torn apart. If we abuse, if we cruelly uh, harm others and our family, that harm will eventually come back to us as well. Hell here is, again, the embodiment of the consequences caused by tearing apart those things that God had made to be good. You know, it, again, this is not a modern book. The modern ear doesn't want to listen to this sort of story. This is out of sync with so much that goes on, I think, in our modern culture where people are basically individuals free to be totally self-determining. Everything has to adjust to self-determination. Dante's message, though, is that there is an ordered world that is good. We adjust to it. We don't get the world to adjust to us. We have to adjust to the goodness of God's creation. The reason why? Because God is God in this regard. And I think one of the, the lessons to learn from Dante, and it's one of the, I think one of the great messages and insights that the church can offer to society, is that none of us are smart enough, good enough, free, divorced from corruption, to order our lives and anybody else's life in any true, meaningful way. None of us are equipped with such insight, conviction, and courage, emotional balance to be able to make our life in the world that we live in a goodly ordered world. We can't do it. We, we fail at that time and time again. What the church should say is that, look, we have been given a gift. And that gift is a good gift. And we need to learn according to that gift. Just like now, spring, just the past two or three days, the dogwood in front of our house finally bloomed up just in time for Easter Holy Week coming up. But what did... Um, uh, uh, Hopkins say glory be to God for dappled things I love that line glory be to God for dappled things for colored things here spring every year reminds us that there's a goodness there's a beauty that is given to us I didn't make my 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 dogwood tree bloom no matter how educated or self-important or self-determining I was I can't make you know the world dappled God has given us that. And God has given us all these other things as well. And so, we should, you know, uh, let me get this thought. If I think that the center of my life is my self-determination, my right to rule my life as I want it to be, then how am I going to bring color and beauty into the world? How can I order the world in a certain way that I can assure that other people will see beauty and grace and love and wonder in it. How can I do that? I can't do that. But if I can live in a way that is a witness to God's goodness and God's beauty and God's creation, then I can share with that how people can also receive that kind of gift. I, I, I said this two or, three, two or three times ago. A person who lives appreciating, basking in the great bounty of God's blessings here is fundamentally defined by gratitude. Appreciation, wonder, and all. But a person who down here is gnawing on somebody's neck, who is treacherous, what are they defined by? Deceit, you know, harm, malice, tearing apart. All right. Treacherous to county uh, and to guest and host. Uh, let me say just a little bit here. I want to. I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. He mentioned some interesting people who betrayed family members. There were quarrels. There was a brother who was offended by a brother. That's Fra Abagro here at the bottom there. He, uh, the, he acted like he forgave his brother. And then a year later, he had a banquet. He brought his brother over and his brother's sons. And he, he ended up killing them all. Well, 
Dante puts him way down into hell. There, that's a depiction of Frauenberg. And, and this is, a, he's being lifted up here out of the grave. That's another kind of distortion of him. But finally, the treacherous to their masters, uh, Satan. This is the place where you must arm your soul against all dread. I did not die, yet I lost life's breath. Dante and Virgil have moved now, and they see what's at the center of the frozen lake, what's at the center of hell, the force that is pulling everything down into just tighter, 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 tighter circles. And it is, as he says here, the emperor of the universe of pain. Okay, he jutted his upper chest above the ice with what? A sense of awe, I saw his head towering above me, for it had three faces. Under each head, two wings rose terribly, and he beat them so that the three winds blew from him in one great storm. It is these winds that freeze all Cotius. Here at the center is Satan, frozen up to his stomach. Here's a famous etching by William Blake. He has wings under each of his head, six wings, two under each head. He has three faces. The first face seems like a, a normal face. The other two are horribly distorted faces. And he is in rage. He is in, well, treachery. He's trying to tear apart once again the goodness of God's creation. Uh, Dante uses the word Lucifer here uh, more than the word Satan. Lucifer, by this time, uh, had become the mythological figure of being a good angel who rebelled against God, led a rebellion against God. God cast him out here into Hades at the very center of it. So Lucifer becomes the symbol of God's good creation in treacherous rebellion against God. He is frozen here by his own making. God did not put him in a frozen lake. Lucifer made his own frozen lake because he's flapping the wings here. And he continues to hate, despise God. He continues to rebel against God. Here's a more vivid depiction of this. Um, this one, the, the, what I like about this one, though it, it tends to be a little sensationalistic, is that it's more bestial than angelic. What is happening here to Lucifer is a lessening, a diminishing of his being, of his God-created form. Here his form is animal-like. It's even worse than that. It's, a, it's a, a conjunction of various animals. It's not natural to be this way, in other words. That when, when Lucifer was not rightly ordered to God, his whole being becomes more and more diminished and perverse and corrupted and grotesque and ugly. And these faces, the two on the back here, do in fact look like animals. But you notice, he's eating people as well. He's the emperor of all punishment. All right, Dante and Virgil, look. The soul that suffers most, explained my God, is Judas Iscariot. He who kicks his legs on the fiery chin and has his head inside. And there with the huge and sinewy arms is the soul of Cassius, who was another betrayer, by the way, of Caesar. Hold fast, my God, and his breath came shrill with labor and exhaustion. There is no way but by such stairs to rise above such evil. All right. This is a Doris depiction. Virgil and Dante are looking on Lucifer, and he's eating Judas Iscariot. What a, what a, what a depiction <coughs> when when. 
when pride becomes the dominant focus, remember it's a deadly sin. When, when pride feeds on itself, it's deadly because it is only destruction. I think there is a good sense of pride. Aristotle mentions it as a virtue. That is, will you rightly accept what are your natural talents? And by that, you actually can do some good. If somebody is always belittling, bemoaning themselves, what good can they do for others? So you need to be at least somewhat proudful of what you can do. But pride as a vice, as a deadly virtue here, as the essence of sin. Here is Satan in his pride, the very center of hell. The essence of sin is pride, is that it begins to feed upon itself. Just like he is feeding upon Judas Iscariot. Pride feeds upon itself. And there's nothing to do to change his opinion. Satan here, flapping his wings, wanting to get out of the frozen prison that he has created for himself, just makes himself more frozen. Pride here justifies itself. And it, it becomes, uh, what's the word? Unreasonable. Uh, it's, it's so impervious to any kind of critique, uh, it, it is permanently locked into its, its rebellion. It is the worst possible thing that can happen. And any time we, in a sense, are drawn to that kind of pride, that is, I'm the center of the world, I'm the center of the universe, I'm the center of my life. I can be disrespectful, disregarding towards other people. Why? Because I am the real center here. In a sense, I am freezing my destiny. My life becomes so constricted, and I become sort of bestial. My right order is towards God, not to myself. Now, something very interesting happens here. We've got a couple of minutes here. At the very end, Dante, I mean, Virgil keeps leading Dante on. And they walk right up to Lucifer, and Dante is terrified by that. And Dante, Virgil shows Dante away down the side of Lucifer, frozen in this lake. They find a little crevice, and they start crawling down his hairy legs, as he says. As they crawl farther and farther down, they see an opening. There's a sort of creek that is running by there. And all of a sudden, as they get to that opening, everything turns upside down. What they thought was top to bottom now has become bottom to top. And so when Dante and Virgil look back up, they see Lucifer's feet hanging up in the sky. They thought they were coming down, but they're actually going up. The transition here to purgatory is a reversal of the process through inferno. What goes down in inferno will come up in purgatory. And it's then, and this is the closing line of the inferno, they look up and they see the stars in the sky. That is, there's a way out of this. Though this is horrible, there's almost a law at work, an implacable law. We reap what we sow. And the sowing sometimes is just unrelenting, eternally tormenting to us. And we will grieve it. We'll bear the marks, and the scars of our own actions. But here, though, by following Virgil, we know that there's hope. God's grace can transform those people who suffer the consequences of their own sin. That I know this sounds kind of maybe overly sentimental, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And for Dante and Virgil, there really was a light at the end of the tunnel. And that is through purgatory. Now, that's another story. And Dante's version of that is pretty interesting. And after thinking about that, 
as a good old free church Baptist, I'm beginning to think that there may be something to that notion of purgatory. All right. We've come all the way. We started at the beginning of Lent. We've seen the bigger circles all the way down to the nearest one. What has been funneling all this is this figure that wants to sanction, baptize, endorse our own self-pride. That is always the essence of sin. I don't need a God to be a God to myself. This is the Augustinian theme that runs throughout Dante's Inferno here. That pride is the essence of sin. And it causes us to misuse our freedom. Love is the right way to use our freedom. But you've got to be careful. And what you have to be careful about is what you love. Well, it's been a hell of an experience. Uh, I'm glad that you've gone with me through this. I don't know. This is probably the third time I've kind of gone through Infernal pretty carefully. And I, I know it far better than the other two. I need to bone up on those as well. But uh, it's always insightful to me. And here is this book, 700 years old. And we're constantly studying it. Why? It, it has insights. We don't think all the way that he does, but it tells us something about our own lives. And I think there is much, much to be learned from Dante. Let's pray. We humble ourselves, O Lord, to the dappled things, the goodness of thy creation in other people, the great color that you show us throughout every breath of our life, the very gift of our lives itself. And we accept that, O Lord. Help us, Lord, to order our lives appropriately and to be the witness to those who struggle with their own infernos that there is a right way to live, and it's in thy grace for which I pray. Amen.